You're listening to TIP. A high degree of executive turnover, especially at a smaller company, is a big red flag. There's one company called Cantaloupe. They make uh, credit card readers for vending machines. They've had seven different CFOs in the last five years. I'm like, you know, something's off there and it's probably accounting related. If you keep going through CFO after CFO after CFO. On today's episode, I am joined by Edwin Dorsey. Edwin writes the popular newsletter, The Bear Cave, which exposes bad companies and corporate misconduct. This makes for fertile hunting ground for short sellers looking to profit on the downfall of a company. Edwin first gained massive attention after he successfully exposed Care.com for an unimaginable amount of negligence that ultimately led to the collapse of the stock. In 2021, the Bear Cave published deep dive critical investigations on 18 public companies. Of those 18, 16 are currently trading lower, and the average performance is negative 35.2% as of the end of the year, while the S&P 500 was up 28%. During the episode, I chat with Edwin about what short selling is, why short selling is a necessary part of a well-functioning free market, what to be mindful of when shorting a company, the biggest red flags he looks for in performing his research, what Edwin uncovered in researching Roblox, Ag Eagle Aerial, and Embark Technology, why Edwin is bullish on Twitter, and much more. I've really enjoyed this conversation with Edwin as he has many unique ways in researching a company and looking for red flags you might not expect to find. Before we dive into the episode, I have an exciting announcement to share with you guys. Robert started the Millennial Investing Podcast back in August of 2019, and the podcast has been very successful considering it's only been around for less than three years. And we really couldn't have done it without your guys' support. So thank you for helping us get to where we are today. To celebrate our success thus far, we wanted to give back to you guys through a giveaway. We're selecting eight winners from the audience to win some cool prizes such as a MacBook Pro, AirPods, $100 Amazon gift cards, and best yet, annual subscriptions to TIP Finance and a TIP course of the winner's choice. Again, we are selecting eight winners to win one of these cool prizes. To get yourself entered for the giveaway, you can go to theinvestorspodcast.com slash giveaway, or you can just click the link in the show notes below. That's theinvestorspodcast.com slash giveaway to earn your chance to win a MacBook Pro or one of the other cool prizes. Terms and conditions apply. Hurry, because the giveaway ends March 10th. So again, thank you guys. Robert and I really appreciate all the support you guys have given us over the years to help us get to where we are today. We couldn't have done it without the support of each and every one of you. All right. Now, without further delay, let's dive right into this week's episode with Edwin Dorsey. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Clay Fink, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Clay Fink. And today, I'm joined by Edwin Dorsey. Edwin, pleasure having you on the show. Clay, thanks so much for having me on the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm very excited to chat with you. Let's get started with your background. You were making waves in the finance world at a very young age. You know, you're a freshman in college when you discovered some things going on at care.com. And this is a story that's just too good not to share with the audience. Talk to us about this story for us. So, Clay, I've been passionate about stocks from a really young age. Like second grade, I was all about stocks. Freshman year of college, I start meeting some short sellers who teach me the dark arts of short selling and how to research companies and look into corporate misconduct. And then summer after freshman year, I've got the short selling bug. I start talking to friends about companies. And one of my friends was a babysitter on the platform care.com, which was the largest publicly traded babysitting platform in the US. And she says, there's something off about this company. You should look into them. Something doesn't seem right. Billion dollar publicly traded company. I'm like, okay, I'll look into safety issues at this babysitting platform. Maybe there's something there. Right away, I start seeing a lot of lawsuits that have been filed against the company for not properly vetting babysitters. 
There was some local news reporting on care.com about safety issues the company was having. And I decided to test out their platform screening for myself by trying to sign up as a babysitter on care.com as Harvey Weinstein. So I made up a fake name, named Harvey Weinstein. I used a photo of Harvey Weinstein. I made up an email address, a social security number. I consented to their background check. And I'm like, there's no way they approved this account as Harvey Weinstein. They said, we'll get back to you in 48 hours. No way I'm approved if they're doing the vetting they claim to be doing. 48 hours, I get an email, hello, Harvey, you've been accepted to care.com. We passed the background check. And then I'm like, I'm taking screenshots and documenting all this. I put it in a little report and tweeted out online, look, the company isn't doing the vetting they claim to be doing. And that goes a little viral. The stock falls, a board member resigns. The company calls Stanford to complain about me, which is my college, and they have some ties with donors at the university. And Stanford says, you need to take this down now. You violated our Wi-Fi policy in doing this. This is bad. And I'm like, no way I'm taking this down. That's ridiculous. And I keep writing about the company. I filed public record requests for consumer complaints against Care.com to see that they were overbilling customers, making it difficult to cancel, inflating other investor metrics. And to make a long story short, I sent up all my like write-ups on care.com to like a hundred different journalists. Eventually the Wall Street Journal gets a little interested and they publish a front page investigation about like eight kids who had been killed by care.com babysitters. The CEO, CFO, and general counsel of care.com all resign. The stock sells off and eventually it's acquired by IAC who puts in better safety practices. But that whole experience, one, gave me like a firsthand look at how bad corporations can behave. And two, it gave me a little credibility because I got mentioned in the Wall Street Journal story. It gave me a Twitter following and a platform to kind of keep going after bad companies and eventually launch the newsletter I write today. What a story. It just blows my mind that something like this could fly under the radar for a billion dollar company. And of all people to discover it, it was a freshman in college to discover what was going on behind the company and really dig in. And then it ends up on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. Just what a story. Just so funny to me. Clay, as a quick side note, I have this theory that because Wall Street is really middle-aged man-dominated, Wall Street's good at pricing companies that have to do with middle-aged men, but then terrible when the company is relevant for women and children. Like If Wall Street was more woman-dominated, something like Care.com would never fly. But you know, I definitely think that's a thing where because it's so middle-aged man-dominated, issues affecting women and children just totally do not get a fair look by Wall Street, which is good for people like me who want to dig into it. You mentioned that this occurrence gave you the short selling bug. Before we dive into some of the other companies you've done research on, let's cover short selling as it's something that you're very familiar with. Could you talk to our Mm -hmm. audience about what short selling is? Absolutely. So short selling is the opposite of going long the stock. Mechanically, it's a little complicated, but the way it works, Clay, is let's say I want to bet against Apple stock and you own Apple stock. I'll approach you and say, hey, can I borrow your shares? I'll give them back to you at a future date. And I'm paying you a small fee for the inconvenience of borrowing your shares. I borrow them from you. I sell them on the open market for like $100 today. And then two months later, after the stock has presumably fallen, I buy them back for 80. I return the shares to you and I profit the difference. I sold it for 100. I bought it back for 80. I made $20 less inconvenience fee I pay you. In reality, the stock can also go up. So I can sell it for 100 and be forced to buy it back for 200 to return it to you and then suffer massive losses. But short selling is just one of many ways you can bet against a company. It's really common with big institutional hedge funds to offset risk in a portfolio. What's always mentioned with short selling is that your downside's unlimited. So if you buy Apple stock, and it goes to zero, you just lose the money you put in. Whereas if you go short, your downside is unlimited because the stock can go up as much as the market wants to bid it up, really. Yeah. The common short seller refrain though is a lot of companies go to zero and I've never seen a company go to infinity. But that's true. Your risk is unlimited because stocks can go up a lot. Now, why do you put such a big emphasis on short selling specifically? So... I would say a few things. First, just by coincidence, my early mentors were big short sellers. So if my early mentors were in private equity, maybe I would have drifted in that direction. 
but that's what kind of attracted me to short selling. Another thing I've mentioned that's unique to short selling is you can actually make a difference in the world with activist short selling, where a lot of finance is paper trading, moving shares back and forth. With short selling, if you find problems at a company, start exposing them or short the stock, you can one, profit as it falls, but two, you can actually make a difference. Like in the care.com example, short sellers in many ways act like journalists in trying to uncover issues, uncovering corporate misconduct and either talking about it publicly by writing about it or working behind the scenes and telling other investors about a problem, going to regulators, going directly to a company. So what attracts me to short selling is you get this real world impact that you don't necessarily get with other parts of finance. I think it's important you mentioned that there is an important role that short sellers play. I think most people are familiar with what kind of happened to GameStop. You hear these hedge funds were able to short over 100% of the shares, which should even seem like it's legal. But people were able to recognize that opportunity and just have that short squeeze occur where you know all these people went long the company and really hurt these short sellers that ended up getting margin called. So how does the margin call process work with short selling? Is that something that retail investors have to be worried about if they go short a stock? Well, you definitely need to be aware of that if you're short a stock because you know shorting is very risky. There's large margin requirements, meaning if you have a $100 portfolio, you probably can't just be short $100 of a random stock because if that stock doubles in a day, which is very possible, you're going to be worth zero. So in a situation like GameStop, you had a lot of these hedge funds and individuals short this company they thought was a dying retailer. If everybody's shorted, the short interest gets extreme where every share out there is being shorted more than one time. It's kind of mind blowing. And then if the stock starts to rise, brokers are going to require a higher amounts of margin where instead of being able to do short for every dollar of equity you have, you might be, need to have $2 of equity to be short a dollar or $3 of equity to be short a dollar. Because when times of big volatility, brokers want a big backstop to make sure if a stock goes up, 400% in a day that you'd be able to cover and return the shares. So that's kind of what happens when you get these short squeezes. Melvin gets in a lot of trouble because they have these huge short positions. Their brokers are demanding more and more cash to say, hey, they're good for their shorts. They'll be able to cover in the future. And that kind of forces them to cover early. And if you cover a lot of stock in a short period of time, that pumps up stocks more. So sometimes if a stock with a heavy short interest starts rising, more and more people need a cover to reduce their exposure. And that forces the stock up a lot higher, which is how you see these short squeezes. So there can be a dynamite effect here with some of these heavily shorted names once they start going up. Back to the fraudulent activity that you look to discover. I'm wondering with all the regulations that exist and information that's public, all the regulatory pieces with a company going public, how are some of these things even possible that you're able to discover in companies? Yeah, it's, you know, people think there's stringent regulations, but in reality, a lot is up to the discretion of management. I think SPACs are unique in that you cannot be held accountable for your SPAC projections, regardless of how off they are. So people will project $100 million in revenue and only get $1 million in revenue. And that's okay in the SPAC world. It's like there's tons of corporate misconduct that people don't pick up on. So just because there's an auditor, doesn't mean there isn't fraud. In fact, every big fraud had an auditor. Enron had a big auditor. There's tons of stuff that doesn't get picked up on. And I think one of the big issues is that Wall Street focuses a lot on numbers and modeling and less on like the heart and soul of a customer experience. So by focusing on customer experience, the core of a product, understanding what a company actually does, you can pick up on a lot of these things that Wall Street misses because they're not reflected in the numbers or they haven't been reflected yet in the numbers. So that's one way I think I'm able to pick up on a lot of stuff that people don't is traditional investing is a lot about looking at numbers and building models. I'm a lot more about the customer experience and what experience does the company actually provide. Outside of the customer experience, are there any other red flags you look for in a company, not just in companies to short, but maybe companies to avoid investing in? Absolutely. One of the biggest red flags, Clay, is high executive turnover. You don't want to see executives shuffling in and out of a company. So I use a website called InsiderScore to look at it, but it's publicly out there. 
a high degree of executive turnover, especially at a smaller company, is a big red flag. There's one company called Cantaloupe. They make uh, credit card readers for vending machines. They've had seven different CFOs in the last five years. I'm like, you know, something's off there. And it's probably accounting related if you keep going through CFO after CFO after CFO. So high degrees of executive turnover, that's one major red flag. High amounts of insider selling is a smaller red flag. Auditor turnover, if auditors are resigning suddenly, that's not a good sign. If you're a bigger company and you don't use a big four auditor, that can be bad, especially, you know, I have a big skepticism of a lot of US listed Chinese companies, any overseas company I'm generally more skeptical of. Uh, The biggest flag any individual investor should look for, though, is a high degree of executive turnover. That's never good to see. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? a tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. I think for anyone that discovers your research, they might want to look into short selling themselves after they see your research and they're like, yeah, there's some fishy things going on about this company. So I'm curious, is it easy to short a company or wouldn't like a regular retail investor, would they just be better off just buying put options or doing something like that? So Clay, I generally don't encourage people to short on their own because your downside's unlimited. You can short $100 and can lose $2,000. What individual wants that potential risk, even if you feel like you know what you're doing? Mechanically, there's a lot of things with borrow rates and you're being charged a fee to short a stock. So generally, for individuals, especially individuals who are new to the market, I don't recommend short selling. Another important thing to remember is on average over the last 200 years, the market's gone up on average 9% a year. So you're fighting against the tide of rising markets when you're shorting, and that's never fun to do. So for most individuals, the other alternative is a put option where you invest a fixed amount of money and a right to sell a stock at a certain price on a certain date. So your losses are limited to the amount you spend on the put option. And generally, you can make multiples of what you buy in a put option. The problem with the put option versus shorting is there's a specific date a stock needs to fall by in order for you to make your money. But for most individuals, buying puts is much less risky than just going short a lot. 
Could you talk about some of the resources you use when you're doing research on a company? Absolutely. And I think there's a lot out there in the public domain that just investors don't utilize enough. My first resource I use a lot is Twitter. I'm on Twitter two or three hours a day. You can search tickers in Twitter and come up with all these articles. And like, I'll honestly spend an hour on every company just looking on Twitter. Every consumer complaint people have tweeted at the company, every article that's been shared on Twitter. You find a lot of cool stuff by using Twitter to research companies. Edgar is the SEC's website to get filings on publicly traded companies. That's what everybody uses. I use that as well. Pacer is the government website that allows individual investors or anybody to look at lawsuits against any specific entities. I use that. In addition to SEC's Edgar, I use SEC full text search, which allows you to search by term. You can see anytime a specific term has appeared in a company's SEC filings over the last 20 years. So you might look up the term resignation and see all the times resignations appeared in the last 20 years. I use Glassdoor to look at employee reviews. Sometimes you'll find something interested there. I also use the PCAOB auditor search tool, which allows you to type in a company's name. It'll pull up the company's auditor, which is generally publicly well-known. It'll also show you the specific auditor partner, audit partner responsible for auditing that company. And that can be insightful because that person might have a track record of the auditing companies that go to zero. So those are all completely free resources I use. In terms of paid resources, two I like. One is Tegas. It's an expensive database that lets you see expert network calls. Another is Bedrock AI. It's a little cheaper. You can put in any company and it uses AI to show you all the problematic things with its filings. But most of my research is done with completely free tools. And I think investors use Twitter, the SEC full text search tool, Pacer, Glassdoor. You're going to uncover a lot that you traditionally miss. Very interesting. It's very clear that you do your research as I've read a few of your reports, including your most recent one, which is Roblox. And that one's really making waves. There's a lot of people talking about it, you know, giving some counterpoints. And, you know, I just found the dialogue on Twitter over this one specifically so fascinating. Tell us about some of the things you found with Roblox. So Roblox, you know, IPO direct listed a year ago, $40 billion company. It has like 30 million daily active users in the US and Canada. It's a gaming platform targeting a lot of young kids, six to 14 year olds primarily. And like care.com, what do you have when you have a lot of young kids playing the game? You have a lot of predators. You have a lot of pedophiles on the platform trying to take advantage of young kids. And it's unfortunate because they say, like care.com, Roblox says they have stringent safety measures. They say they vet every item that goes into the game. There's a lot of user-generated content on Roblox. They say they have a team of 2,300 people in safety and moderation. What I showed in my Roblox report is that they actually don't take safety that seriously. Over and over again, registered sex offenders, convicted pedophiles have gone on the platform and like, you know, abused kids or like gotten kids' phone numbers, gotten to meet them in person, just terrible, terrible things. And the company just isn't able to stop it because they haven't made the correct investments in trust and safety. For example, the company claims they banned hand-holding and any romantic gesture in the game, but then they have live strip clubs where children can role-play as strippers with real audio with other strangers to earn virtual currency. And it's like, this is so messed up. Of course, this is a breeding ground for a lot of inappropriate behavior. So that's problem one with Roblox. Problem two with Roblox is that they have this kind of like hidden dark web economy for their virtual currency. The way they make money is they get parents to buy their kids this virtual currency called Robux, which is worth about a penny that they can use in games for presumably a better experience. In reality, a lot of kids are like buying and selling items, Roblox items in this marketplace where items can be worth like $1,000 and they go up and down in value. There's like a stock market for these like in-game items. There's also a lot of illegal gambling with Roblox's currency where there's like off-platform sites where people can wager thousands of dollars of Roblox's fake currency for on games of like roulette and rock, paper, scissors, and coin flips. It all makes like no sense. And the thing you need to be very worried about with Roblox is in addition to letting people buy this virtual currency for a penny, there's also a cash out mechanism where on the black market or through the company yourself, you can get around half a penny back by turning in this currency. 
So when you have that, you have concerns about money laundering and all this weird things going on where Roblox is seen as a super safe, kid-friendly platform for an awesome gaming experience. It turns out they have huge moderation and safety issues. They have like a dark web, a legal market for their virtual currency and investors aren't aware of it. One prominent venture capitalist on Twitter is like, yo, no, Roblox is a hundred times safer than, a thousand times safer than a playground, is what he said. It's a thousand times safer than a playground, even though they have like virtual strip clubs for six-year-olds in their game. It's completely off base and just investors aren't aware of it. And I think it's gonna be a really big problem in the future. I have some questions on Roblox. Regarding the virtual currency, is that a crypto or what's going on with that? I don't think it's crypto. I think it's just like your parents pay $5, $10 and their kids get a thousand of these Robux that they can use. I think it's just like other games, virtual currency, but there's a cash out mechanism where you can convert it back to real US dollar. So I was curious if there's these Robux on these other websites. How are you able to get the virtual currency off of the Roblox platform? Like that piece just doesn't make too much sense to me. Okay, so you're able to like link up your Robux account with these offsite platforms. And then the platforms essentially like in order for you to join, they take control of your Robux account and they can send it to other users. And sometimes it's easier to trade items for between Roblox users and not just the currency. So there's these proxy items to represent the currency. Like there's one called perfectly legitimate business app that's worth around a hundred US dollars. And you'll see players trading them back and forth between each other when they're really just settling gambling debts done off-site. It's crazy. And this is happening on a platform for six-year-olds. The company's making money off it and they don't want to turn a blind eye because, you know, they make money off it. Another example of how terrible this is, there's apps that where kids can download it and they like watch ads and like do nonsense, fill out quizzes, like leave fake reviews, and they get paid this virtual Robux currency which they use in their games. So there's literally eight-year-olds leaving online reviews like, I'm spending an hour every day watching random ads just to earn Robux for this game. So there's this entire back market ecosystem Roblox is allowed to be created that they make money off of that investors just don't know about. You know, it's pretty incredible how many users Roblox has. You mentioned they have 30 million active users. When you're dealing with that many users, a skeptic of this article would say that the internet has bad actors and any company of Roblox's size is going to have these types of issues. Absolutely. And it always comes down to reasonableness and company representation. So is this just that there's tons and millions, millions of people and there's a few bad actors and I'm cherry picking or is there actually an issue? Well, if you look at some of the people who've been indicted or arrested for inappropriate actions to Roblox. One person was arrested for abusing, getting the child pornography from 150 children. And that's only enabled by the internet and by a negligent platform. The guy's own lawyer said the case was possibly unprecedented, where a sex offender is using Roblox to prey on children. In other examples, registered sex offenders sign up on Roblox and buy the currency from Roblox. Roblox is making money selling their virtual currency to people already who are convicted sex offenders. That is a whole nother level of negligence that you probably don't see on other platforms. No one's created this real virtual currency that has like a black market value. No one has a game that's solely targeting young people. That's one thing. And then the other thing is the company's representations. The company says they monitor every piece of human reviews, every piece of content that is on the website. And they tell parents we have cutting edge safety technology. They say all romantic gestures are banned then there's literal strip clubs in their games. That's showing that they aren't actually vetting. They aren't doing the vetting that they represent to parents they do. So it's one thing if you say we have a platform that's a free-for-all and hopefully kids will be safe. You know, at least you're accurately representing it, but you can't say you're vetting every item and then not actually vet every item. Do you know how much they're spending on safety for their platform? I don't know. I'm sure it's like they'll exaggerate and lie and say we have 2,300 people. One interesting thing, though, is they also operate in China. And in China, there's a lot of stringency. The government says you can't show blood on screen. The children cannot play for more than an hour a day. You can't show like any nudity, any inappropriate actions to Chinese kids playing Roblox. And Roblox is a whole different mechanism for content moderation in China where they invest a lot there. 
that doesn't exist in the U.S. So I don't know how much they spend, but whatever it is, it's not enough and they're not confident enough. Do you know if they've ran into any legal issues around the items you've highlighted? My guess is no. I don't think people are as aware of how widespread the problem is because I think, you know, some parents just stop their kids from playing. And, you know, I bet in some communities, parents have caught on that there's a lot of inappropriate activity on Roblox. I don't know if it's really been solved through litigation yet. Yeah, it really does come down to that trust, especially from the parents, the law enforcement and the government. If they lose overall trust in the platform, the company could really run into some issues. So it'll be interesting to watch play out. And another important thing with Roblox, and one thing I always look at is what is the market valuing of the company at? If it's trading at 10x profits and the market knows there's some issues, then that's fine. But Roblox is trading at 40x revenue. It's not currently profitable on a gap basis. It's also a game that's selling really to children. And you know, if you know anything about children online, things go in waves. There's fads. Like Club Penguin was hugely popular 10 years ago, and it's not even around now. So to me, Roblox is like the modern day Club Penguin with a lot of issues. And two years from now, it'll be just like not as hot. And then, but Wall Street, you know, the men on Wall Street are like, I have a nephew who likes Roblox to the moon, metaverse play, whatever. But I think Wall Street just has this one so wrong. Well, I'm really excited to keep an eye on this one. Let's talk about one of your other reports, Ag Eagle Aerial Systems, ticker UAVS. I've really enjoyed reading this report and it's almost comical. This is essentially a stock that was pumped up because of rumors of a potential Amazon partnership that was just total hype. What I find so fascinating is you wrote this report back in February of 2021 And the stock is now down 90%. I mean, what a find on your part. And I'm sure many of your subscribers took the opportunity to bet against this one after reading some of the information you found. Ag Eagle Aerial Systems is a great example of some of the risks inherent investing, especially when you're an individual investor. This company, Ag Eagle Aerial Systems, claimed they were making a next generation drone that was going to you know, revolutionize transport and delivery. And then they said, our drone can be used to like monitor marijuana fields and like, you know, use for hemp farmers to like fly a camera. They're just a mess. And then eventually they say, oh, we're going to do partnerships with major e-commerce developers to deliver packages directly to people's houses with our drone. And there's just so much hype, so much passion. Uh, The individual investors take the stock from one to 15 on this like just management hype. And then you just dig into it. The moment you start digging into the company, everything falls apart. They have like six employees. They've spent $400,000 in total on research and development. You can't make a next generation technology with that. If you go to YouTube and try to find videos of it, you can find their drone is literally just like a remote control helicopter with the GoPro attached. It's like, this is just a nonsense company. And you dig more and more into it. And you're like, where did these rumors that like Amazon was going to partner with them come from? Well, like what happened is the chairman's daughter made a video that was private on YouTube that had the Amazon logo and Ag Eagle Technologies logo next to each other. And then some anonymous person on Reddit is like, look what, what I found. There's a partnership coming. And then all these paid stock promoters are like, I hear a rumor, Ag Eagle. Like, and it's just all fake. It's all nonsense. And the investment group behind it that gave this company a lot of money to spend on this paid stock promotion is a fund in like, you know, some obscure European country that had been involved in like 10 of these pump and dumps before where every company goes up a ton and then collapses. And this company got to like a billion dollar market cap, mostly money from individual investors who lost their shirts, even though there was literally no substance there, no revenue, obviously no partnership with Amazon ever materialized. It was all puffery and nonsense. And it's one of those things where if you're an individual, you might say, oh, let me get in early. They're going to have a partnership with Amazon. I think I'm doing real research. I think there's a lot of new drones and they say, you know, management is spewing all this nonsense, but there's no substance there. And that's why you always got to go to the source filings, go to the SEC filings, see how much they spend on R&D. How many employees do they have? Does it make sense that a six person company with 400,000 in R&D actually like changed something significant? No. So Ag Eagle Aerial Systems, just one of the most ridiculous companies out there. 
I think there's a lot one can learn with what you found from this. I mean, this company just screams red flags. It had six employees spent 40000 on R&D in the past three years, suspicious revenue recognition policy, one undisclosed entity that accounted for 94% of their revenue. The list just goes on and on with this one. It's just so ridiculous that this was able to happen in a public market for investors. And the thing is, Clay, this type of stuff just keeps happening over and over again, where companies at a billion, two, three billion dollar valuation are going public, even though they have no substance. Another more recent example I wrote about, Clay, is Embark Trucking. This was a $4 billion SPAC deal that happened like two months ago, I think late November. This trucking company, they're building software to help trucks drive autonomously and their software should be released in 2025. They have no revenue. They have a 25-year-old CEO. And the more and more you look into it, they're going through a speculative $4 billion valuation, but there's just nothing there. All the executives at this company are the CEO's college roommates and they're all in their 20s from the you know University of Ottawa. And it's like, wait a second. And then you look at the one real engineer they hired from Tesla. He left after less than two years, which is a sign something else is like a little off. And you look at competitors, uh, every competitor in this space of autonomous trucking has hundreds or thousands of patents. This company had zero patents. They said they rely on trade secrets. Like Theranos, we rely heavily on trade secrets. And then they're like, well, we can be sued for violating other people's patents too. And it's so frustrating to see it because it's almost always retail investors who are getting screwed over. Because the CEO of that company would go embark trucking and go on these podcasts, go on media appearances, and would count nonsense metrics. He'd say, we have 15,000 pre-orders for our truck. And then I'd go to the SEC filings, you dig around for two minutes. Well, what is a pre-order for your truck? Well, first, you don't make the trucks. You're just making the software. Second, these are the pre-orders of $500 refundable deposit. And you have partners who are exempt from the $500. So your 14,000 pre-orders could be 13,000 from your own made-up entity that you're exempting. And then 1,000 from a real customer who's just putting a $500 refundable deposit down. So you're an investor sitting at home trying to do research saying 14,000 trucks, it's like a huge potential. And then the reality is it's just all nonsense. It's just all puffery and like no substance there. And it's really frustrating to see, which is why I kind of have a passion for this because it's a hurting individual. You know, with all these SPAC companies going public, it seems like a really good hunting ground, especially since it's been in a bubble, what feels like a bubble the last year or so. And a lot of these companies moving down after they end up going public. So I think that's a good place to look for someone like yourself. Absolutely. And Clay, I track these specific sponsors and underwriters. There's one called Early Bird Capital. I think they've taken 22 companies, SPACs public in the last two years. 22. Of those 22, 21 are down. Only one is up and 21 are down. And I'm like, you know, you can have a pretty good batting average if you're just focused on SPACs. So SPACs are one really fertile hunting ground for me. The other place I look a lot are US listed Chinese companies. A lot of Chinese companies come to the US, access their capital markets here, and then, you know, commit fraud or just lie about their business. And you can see a lot of these IPOs just like fall 90% in the first two years after they list, that's another really fertile hundred ground. But SPACs, tons of nonsense going on there. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling. 
even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. Have you done a lot of research on Chinese companies? I always hear that it's very difficult to find real research to find out what's actually going on behind the scenes in these companies. So it's tough to get really in the weeds if you don't understand the language and can't go physically to China and visit the factories and do that type of research. I like to do what I call just red flag hunting. Look at a company and see just how many red flags will pop out at once. So I look at the CEO and board and see what other boards and companies have they been involved in. Sometimes you look at like a $2 billion Chinese company and every board member has been on three other companies that collapse and the CEO has been on a company that collapsed. And it's like, if you're all associated with failure in the past, then your current venture is likely to be a failure. We touched on this briefly before, but I also look at the auditor. These, I think for US listed Chinese companies, this can be particularly important because the risk of fraud is a lot greater. I look at the auditor and the specific audit partner who's in charge of auditing that Chinese company. And oftentimes you'll find individuals who only audit fraud. It's like literally every company they audit goes to zero. And I'm like, oh, wait, you have this really like checkered individual in charge of auditing you? Like that's an instant short. One thing that I didn't mention that I do a lot is Chinese companies specifically is I look at SEC comment letters. This is a completely free thing on uh, the SEC's website. You can search for comment letters, which is informal correspondence between the SEC and a company, usually before they go public, but sometimes afterwards. You'll find a lot of nuggets of really interesting information in those letters. Sometimes the SEC is like, wait a second, your CFO forgot to sign that form. Like, why is that? They'll be like, oh, clerical error. It's never a clerical error. It's always like fraud. Or they're like, you know, we can't understand why these two metrics don't agree. And companies will be like, clerical error, clerical error. It's always because it's just a total fraud and you're making things up. So that's one thing I look for. SEC comment letters. Yeah. Very interesting. Switching gears. Let's talk about a stock that you are actually long. And you've been very public about this position, and that is a position in Twitter. The stock hasn't done well as of late, like many other growth companies. Tell us what you've been seeing in Twitter and why you like the pick so much. Clay, I need to disclose, I got the vast majority of my net worth in Twitter stock. So I'm biased and none of this is investment advice. Everyone should do their own thinking and own research on this. As a user, I love Twitter. It's an awesome platform to learn. It's the perfect discovery tool. As a newsletter author, Twitter is essential for my business and so many other content creators. I get over half my new subscribers from Twitter. Every newsletter gets 50 to 80% of the new subscribers from Twitter. It's incredible how important it is for any content creator and discovery of information. It's unique among the social media platforms in that it isn't to me like when you talk about Facebook and Instagram and TikTok, those seems like fads to me. It's interesting. It's cool. It's something to spend your time or impress other people. 
but it could totally go away. Where Twitter, it's like a professional identity and learning tool that'll be with you for life. You can use Twitter when you're 16. You can use it all the way up till you're 90. Instagram, at least in my view, doesn't have that like staying power and durability that Twitter has. I also love the Twitter management. They would always talk about wanting Twitter to be around for the next 100 years, caring about the user experience, caring about moderation, putting a lot of thought and care into these issues where Facebook is the exact opposite. Facebook cares about money. Facebook wants to be monetizing like crazy. Twitter banned political ad spending very early on the platform because it was bad for the health of conversation. While Facebook was taking money from politicians of all stripes for a very long time, Twitter hasn't had these safety issues. They've invested a lot in putting public studies out on how to improve the health of the conversation. Facebook just never did that. So I like Twitter because it's this platform that I'm confident will be around for the next 100 years. It hasn't been great at monetizing, but it's going to get better and better in the long run. Historically, it's just been advertising. Now they have a lot of new features that have opened up new paths for monetization, not just better advertising, but super follows and paying for content you like from top creators, spaces, which is their live audio product where you can include ads, newsletters, e-commerce is another place they're venturing into where I think they're going to be successful in allowing people to buy directly on Twitter. There's all these like avenues for tons of potential that just haven't been like fully realized. And the final thing is two months ago, they got a new CEO who's the youngest CEO in the S&P 500. So Twitter, this remarkably unique asset with 200 million daily active users, just loved by its users, tons of potential. And now you got the youngest CEO in the S&P 500 with incredibly low expectations and a ton of room to execute. This is a company I see myself holding for the next 10, 20, 30 years. And I think the market just has it so wrong. It's the ninth most visited website in the world, and it's got a $30 billion market cap. It just makes no sense. One of the concerns for me on Twitter is how effective they'll end up being at monetizing their platform. This is my guess as to why it's trading at a much lower valuation than the other social media platforms. Because as a business, in the end, it comes down to the bottom line that the company produces when it comes to valuing the company. Also, when I think of Facebook, they collect all of this data on their users, their gender, age, occupation, income, so on and so forth. I'd be surprised if Twitter collects anywhere near the data that Facebook does. Facebook's ability to monetize their users has just put them head and shoulders above any other social media platform. But now they are running into those privacy issues. So yeah, that's my main concern about Twitter especially since advertising is their primary revenue source as of today, at least. Clay, that's a great point. And ironically, I'm going to twist that around and say it's a positive. Because with Facebook, you saw that they've been hit really hard recently because of Apple's privacy changes and starting to restrict what information you get and how much you can target your ads. That's affecting Facebook a lot. Because Twitter was a little bit behind the eight ball on collecting information and never relied on it that much, they're going to be much less affected by this push towards privacy and respecting people's uh, private information. I would say Twitter is just so far behind other companies and how well they can target advertisements and what you can do with the advertisements. Until recently, you haven't even been able to directly download an app straight from a Twitter ad. Because of that, I think it's almost a good thing. And finally, the market's really pricing this in. Twitter's at like eight times revenue or something silly where other platforms like Snapchat and Pinterest are at 30, 40x, even though Twitter has the most room to grow. It just never makes sense to be like, I, I write a newsletter, I get a lot of followers from Twitter, I would happily pay $30,000 a year just to promote my newsletter to other people who sign up and pay for newsletters through Twitter. Right now, there's no great avenue for me to do that. But I know the moment I can, I'm totally going to be willing to do that. So I see myself you know, as an incredibly happy user. I pay for their blue product, which is their $3 a month subscription that just rolled out. They have tons of room to monetize with me and other users. And they have the durability of a tech company that I don't think exists with a Facebook or Pinterest or Snapchat. The censorship or calls for people to leave Twitter, is that a concern for you at all? You know, if you look at all these other Twitter copycats that say we don't have censorship, they get a lot of viewers and then everyone leaves because it turns out you don't want just tons of craziness just spewing over and over and over. When you have nothing, then it just all skews. 
to like the crazy zone. And when you have some censorship and it all skews right to the line of like what's censored in terms of virality. I'm a big free speech fan. I think in order to have free speech, you need to have too much. You need to have terrible content. You need to have content you don't agree with. It's just kind of necessary to preserve the beauty of free speech is you need to get the ugly side. They go together. That said, Twitter is a private company. So I think if you have clear policies, and one of the things they did that Facebook's never done is they rewrote their policies to be in plain, clear English. So all users can like understand what the rules are and abide by them. If you have policies and you enforce them, I don't view it as that much of a business risk. Yeah, I find it really interesting that Twitter's rolled out all of these new products. You mentioned the newsletter feature, the spaces, the Twitter blue, the super follows, all these things that have potential for them. Let's dig a little bit more into your newsletter called The Bear Cave. What do you offer with The Bear Cave and where do you see it going in the future? So Clay, The Bear Cave is a newsletter I started two years ago. Instead of joining a hedge fund when I graduated college, I decided to start out on my own with this newsletter. The Bear Cave does two things. There's a free version where every Sunday, I just recap what's going on in the short seller world. I summarize new activist short campaigns. There's like five or 10 every week. I list all interesting resignations from the last week so you can keep track of executive turnover. I link to interesting articles and I highlight five or 10 interesting tweets. That's in the free version that goes out to 25,000 people every Sunday. And then there's a paid version, which costs 44 a month or 440 a year, where I do deep dives on companies that I feel are misleading investors or hurting customers. So that's Roblox, that's Embark Technology, that's Ag Eagle Aerial Systems. Twice a month, I write up these roughly a thousand word reports. I need to say, I don't bet against the stock myself. I only make money from paid subscribers. And that's what I do. And it's you know more popular among journalists, regulators, hedge funds, things of that nature, and just like individuals who like seeing me expose companies. So that's my job. My entire job is sending six emails every month. It works really well. Financially, I'm earning a ton more than I could at like, any fun. It has ultimate freedom for a 23-year-old. And then another thing I launched recently is a newsletter called Sunday's Idea Brunch, where I interview interesting investors every Sunday and publish a written interview where I ask them about their investment process. How do you research companies? Well, what are your top ideas? What do you do in the first hour of research? I go out and I find great investors, usually through Twitter is how I approach people. And then the first half of the newsletter is free. The second half is for paying subscribers. But interviewing a lot of great investors has been an interesting experience for me too. Very cool, Edwin. Thank you so much for coming on the Millennial Investing Podcast. For those in the audience that want to get connected with you, where can they go? They should Google Edwin Dorsey and follow me on Twitter or check out the Barricade newsletter. Yep. I'll be sure to link both of those in the show notes, Edwin. Thank you so much for coming on. Clay, thanks for having me. This has been awesome. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please go ahead and follow us on your favorite podcast app so you can get these episodes delivered automatically. And if you haven't already done so, be sure to check out our website, theinvestorspodcast.com. There you'll find all of our episodes, some educational resources we have, as well as some tools you can use as an investor. And with that, we'll see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.